Revelation chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. One day we will finish this study on the Church of Philadelphia, but it won't be this day. Verses 11 and 12. Behold, I am coming quickly. Of course, we know this is Jesus speaking. The entire book of Revelation was imparted to John by Jesus Christ. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. Let's pray. Father, as we look at these two verses today, we pray for additional understanding and insight that would be imparted to us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we're living in a time where we definitely need revelation, wisdom, guidance, understanding. We've always needed that. The human race has needed that from the beginning of human history. But Lord, as we are now in the last days, the last of the last days, I believe, Father, we need your enlightenment now more than ever. So we ask you to speak to our hearts this morning in Jesus' name. When I read this part where it says that no one may take your crown, again, it kind of conjured up that thoughts of uh, monarchies and kings and kingdoms and so forth. And, and I actually was thinking, you know, in today's world, that idea of a nation being ruled over by a king sounds like a horrible thing. Uh, the, there was a great king named King David who was a good king. Jesus is our king, right? And he rules over an eternal kingdom. But man, when you see what we have to go through every four years, maybe it wouldn't be so bad to have a king, you know? It's, I'm about at the point where I'd almost rather have a king rather than have to go through this every four years. You know what I mean? Anyway, Jesus says here in verse 11, again, who is he speaking to at this point? The church of Philadelphia, the missionary church, the church of brotherly love the church that we all should desire to be a part of. And he tells them, I'm coming quickly. Now, you've heard me talk about this before, because people will mock, they will scoff, and they will say, well, see, the Bible is out to lunch, because this was written 2,000 years ago, and he hasn't come yet. Peter talks about that in his epistle. But the word in the Greek, it emphasizes not immediacy, as in coming today or tomorrow, it emphasizes the suddenness of Christ's return more than the immediacy of it. And what it means is that when the events surrounding what is referred to in the Scriptures as the day of the Lord, and it's always, in most translations, when you come across this phrase, the day of the Lord, the D is capitalized because it is a very specific time in human history. And again, it's not just one day. Peter tells us with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. But the day of the Lord is an even shorter period in time, which I believe is triggered by the rapture of the church, then followed by seven years of tribulation, and then we have the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ on earth. I put all of those items in that category of the day of the Lord because the last 6,000 years on this earth has been the day of man, if you will. And we haven't done a very good job. 
But God's given us this time to show us, to teach us how much we really need Him. That we're not capable of managing things here on this planet without His help, without His intervention, and ultimately without Christ returning to rule and reign over this world for a thousand years. So the day of the Lord. When the events surrounding the day of the Lord begin to unfold, and I think they already are, they will happen very quickly. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm coming quickly. That even though there will be those who say, oh, we've got plenty of time. He's not coming any time in the near future. I think I just had somebody the other day say something about they thought it might be another 100 or 150 years. Well, they may have to do some catch-up. By then, we could very well be in the millennium. And the point being, and this is emphasized over and over again, particularly in the New Testament, that those who are not prepared for his return will be caught off guard. Keep in mind this word here, this scripture, verse 11, Revelation 3, Behold, I am coming quickly. Jesus gave this message to the church through the Apostle John 2,000 years ago. But in God's time frame, that's a couple days. So think how close we must be now. So I'm going to read from 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 3. Knowing this first, Peter says, that scoffers will come in when? The last days. And I would say, I've said things similar before, but I think people are more skeptical now of the return of Christ than perhaps at any time in the last 2,000 years. Scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. Don't have a lot of that going on, do we? So they're mocking, they're walking according to their own lusts, saying, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this, Peter says, they willfully forget. Willfully forget, it's a choice. That by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. So he's talking about creation and then Noah's flood which was the first outpouring of God's wrath on this planet. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire. Remember that God promised Noah he would never again destroy the world with water? He didn't say anything about fire. <laughs> Until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack or slow concerning his promise. What is the promise here? The promise of his coming. As some count slackness, you know, lackadaisical, slow, unconcerned. No, he's not those things. But he is long-suffering towards us. In other words, patient, not willing that any should perish. Those who uh, accuse God of being a mean, evil, nasty God because he sends people to hell, well, guess what? He doesn't. The Bible tells us that hell was created for the devil and his angels. And we make our own choice, either to choose Christ to choose life, eternal life, or to reject Christ and therefore choose 
eternal death and eternal punishment in hell. It's your choice. God won't send you there. You have the choice. He's not willing that any should perish. If God's perfect will was done in this world, not one man, woman, boy, or girl would ever go to hell. We would all be with him forever in paradise. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so because we are all born in sin, thanks to our father Adam, we're all born in sin. In order to come into right relationship with God, we don't have to be perfect because we can't be perfect. It's impossible. But what we must do is repent. That was the message of John the Baptist. That was the message of Jesus. God's message is a message of love, grace, mercy, forgiveness. But it's predicated, like we talked about last week, God's promises are conditional. It's predicated upon our willingness to confess our sins before God and repent. Repent means you turn from that life, which he just mentioned here, where they walk according to their own lusts. You turn from that life and you become a follower of Jesus Christ. You're not saved by your good works, but your good works are the evidence that you are truly saved. He's not willing that any should perish. So no one can ever accuse God of being a mean, vengeful, hateful God. In fact, John tells us in his first epistle that God is love. Just as Jesus is the truth, he's the embodiment of truth. He's not just a representative of the truth. Jesus is the truth. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the very embodiment of truth. And they are also the embodiment of love. Therefore, he's not willing. If his will were to be done all the time, no one would perish. But he's given us a free will also, and we can choose. But the day of the Lord, there it is again, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Again, for those who are not watching, those who are not ready, in which the heaven will pass away. And here, again, we have a compression of the time frame because this passing away of the heavens with a great noise the elements will melt with a fervent heat both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up this actually takes place at the end of the millennium when God will create a new heaven and a new earth we won't be impacted by this because we will be immortal and so we will be there with the, the melting and fervent heat of the old elements and as God recreates all things we will be there with him so when Jesus says, I'm coming quickly, this is what he means, that when that time arrives, everything will unfold very quickly. There will appear to be an acceleration of time. In fact, Jesus said if the days were not shortened, even the elect would not be saved. So even in the midst of God's wrath, the outpouring of his wrath during the tribulation, he accelerates the process because even in the midst of judgment, in the midst of wrath, you can always see God's grace intermingled. All right, he says, I'm coming quickly, so what should you do, Philadelphia? Believers there in Philadelphia, hold fast what you have. Remember what he told Sardis. Now, Sardis was identified as the dying church. He told them to strengthen what remains. Sardis was not completely dead, but they were definitely headed down that road. 
And so Jesus tells them, strengthen what remains. We saw back in verse 8 that he told the church of Philadelphia, you have a little strength. Here he says, hold fast what you have. Now we saw that the Christians at Philadelphia were strong because they'd kept the word of God and they'd obeyed his commands. They had not denied the name of Jesus. They had upheld the name of Jesus. They'd kept the word of God. They'd obeyed his commands. In addition, they were committed to spreading the gospel. They were the missionary church. But I would propose, based upon what Jesus is telling them here, that even the strongest of churches and believers must hold on, not letting go, not giving up. Proverbs 4.13, take firm hold of instruction. And see, to do that, it means doing what we're doing here this morning, the gathering of the saints, the corporate study of the Word of God, as well as your own individual time in the Word, meeting in smaller groups like Ed talked about this morning, the Koinonia groups, the women's Bible study, the men's breakfast where they also study the Word. Take firm hold of instruction. You can't take a really casual approach to your faith and hope to take and keep a firm hold of instruction. Do not let go. There are constantly voices all around us calling out to try to draw us into another way of thinking, another way of believing. And if we are not holding firm to that instruction in the Word of God, if we are not holding on fast and strong, then we are in danger of losing these things. Do not let go. Keep her instruction, for she is your life. And I can pretty much guarantee you, anyone that you know that's in your realm, your circle of friends and acquaintances, family members and so forth, anyone that you know that was once at least giving the appearance of being a follower of Christ, laying claim to being a believer, as I've come to say, identifying as a believer, anyone that you know that has drifted from that I can guarantee you it's because they have not held fast. They have not taken firm hold of instruction. They have taken it lightly. They have disregarded the importance of being a part of a body of believers, of being committed and dedicated to God and to one another, of studying the Word, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer like in the book of Acts. In fact, what did the believers do there? They met daily. We're fortunate if we can get people to come once a week. They met daily. And that's why you see such dynamic things happening in the early church. A lot of people often ask these kinds of questions. Why don't, why don't we see all that amazing, miraculous stuff happening today that we read about in the book of Acts? I mean, I've even asked myself that question. Could it very well be because... the you look at the level of dedication of those early Christians, they met daily. That takes a level of dedication and commitment that hardly anyone today could muster up. So we're really like Philadelphia. We have a little strength. and We better hold on to it. We better not let go. 
1 Thessalonians 5.21, test all things. Now, how do you do that? Here's what you test them by. By the truth of God's Word. Test all things. Test the purpose-driven church. Test the Word of faith. Test all these things. These popular pet doctrines that are always rising up. Test it against this. That's the plumb line. That's the measuring. That's the yardstick. Test all things. Test the... uh, the church in Denver that uses uh, marijuana as their sacrament. You heard about that one? I forget what the name of the church is. It's like the pot church, the weed church. And they smoke dope in church. I always thought there were a lot of dopes up there. I used to live there. It used to be kind of a cool place. Rocky Mountain High. Now it's really Rocky Mountain High. Back then, when John Denver sang that song, it meant the elevation. Now it has a whole different meaning. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. And see, that's that's the devil's strategy. He's like uh, Monty Hall. You know, let's make a deal. You know, give me that box and I'll give you what's behind curtain number one. You know, the enemy's always trying to get us to let go of the things that we have in Christ for the things of this world that seem to be so appealing, right? Hebrews 3.6, Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. This is a very important issue, folks. How many people do you know that have not held on? Once upon a time, they seemed to be very sincere about their faith, very dedicated, very committed. Paul emphasizes the athletic nature of the Christian life in his writings, talking about finishing the race, you know, Getting the victor's crown. Now people get ribbons and medals and, and um, statues and so forth for competing, you know, for attending, for participating. Boy, how proud would you be? Participant. <laughs> That's, <laughs> we used to strive, you know, first place, second place, anything below third place, eh, forget it, right? Now it's, Participant. (laughs) Paul says run so as to get the crown. In fact, that's what's up next, so that no one may take your crown. The victor's crown received at the end of a race or for military exploits. And by the way, let's make it clear, this warning is not about the loss of salvation but the, but the potential loss of reward, as in a crown. There are various crowns spoken of in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 9.25 speaks of a crown that will last forever. We talked earlier about the um, last czar of Russia, Nicholas II, monarchies, kings, kingdoms. None of those crowns will last forever, will they? 
But we as believers have been promised a crown that will last forever. 2 Timothy 4.8, the crown of righteousness. Oh, this is so significant, folks. Who gets the crown of righteousness? All who have longed for his appearing. We've talked about this so many times. Not only do we need to be looking for his appearing, expecting it, and again, there are so many under the umbrella of the church who say, well, we shouldn't focus on that. It could be hundreds, thousands of years. Jesus, we don't know when he's coming. And yet, this crown is for those who long for it. Unless you believe he's coming at any moment, how are you going to long for it? Right? We are to be longing for it, not just thinking, well, it might happen one of these days, I guess. When Jesus said he was coming back, so far he's told the truth about everything. No, we should be longing. There's a special crown for those who long for his appearing. I don't know about you guys. Almost every night I pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Lord, please, we're ready. Father, give him the word, please. Tell him to come and get us. I'm longing for his appearing. I don't know about you. And, and it's okay because the Bible says we're supposed to. Some people might rapture shame you. Just get off it, man. Quit talking about the rapture. You know, just, you know, get on with your daily life. Well, my daily life is all about Jesus coming again. <laughs> Don't let him rapture shame you now. The next one, James 1.12, Revelation 2.10, the crown of life. 1 Peter 5.4, the crown of glory. 1 Corinthians 3.14 and 15, if anyone's work which he has built on it, it being the firm foundation of Jesus Christ, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, in other words, it has eternal value, he will receive a reward if anyone's work is burned. So he talks about the precious gems, precious metals, the, the jewels, the gold, the silver. Those will last forever, but then there's the wood, the hay, the stubble. And so God's fire, God is a fiery God. When we stand before him, the wood, the hay, the stubble will be burned up. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, as in terms of reward, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. I talk about those little scorch marks on the back of your robe there. Oh, I see um, <clears throat> some of your stuff didn't make it, right? <laughs> Got burned up. Wow, does anybody smell a campfire? <laughs> didn't know they had those up here in heaven. Talking about reward. Not loss of salvation, but loss of reward. 2 John 1.8 Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. And see, we can try, and we get, we get little hints in the Scriptures like this idea of the crowns. We can't fully understand or conceptualize the full meaning and the depth of what these eternal rewards look like. We know there are promises 
from Jesus and the Gospels that if we're faithful with a few things here in this life, he will make us rulers over much. And we know that in the millennial kingdom there will be various responsibilities handed out to believers, immortals, who will, under the rule and reign of Christ, be his administrators, his adjudicators, But there's so much more to it than what we can even think or imagine. But I think if the scriptures warn us about losing our reward and making sure that we receive a full reward, then that's something we should focus on. Do you think? Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things that we worked for. And see, the focus with God is always on the eternal. With man, it tends to be on the temporary, the temporal. And that's certainly what the devil would like us to be focused on, the here and the now, the immediate, instant gratification. Isn't that what our world is all about today? Much of the technology that we now have and use, and definitely is a double-edged sword, is, has been invented and created for the purpose of instant gratification. You know... It wasn't that long ago that you couldn't make a phone call unless you could find a landline. Right? And so you, you just lived with it. I don't remember anybody stressing out about it. You went through your day, you were at work, you were at school, whatever you were doing. You didn't have a phone. Didn't think about it that much, right? Now you're, it's constantly, you're pulling it out. You know, everywhere you go, everybody's doing this, right? And it's like a drug. If you don't get a fix every few moments, you go into withdrawals, correct? You've got to constantly know what's going on. You've got to get a hold of your BFF, and you've got to do a little LOL and OMG and all that. Instant gratification. But all of it's just temporal, earthly. It's not eternal. And as I mentioned, we hear all these voices. The flesh, the devil, the world, the flesh, the devil. And they're all trying to tempt us to lay down what we have in Christ in order to take up other things that seem more desirable, more satisfying, more gratifying. But if we hold on, One day we will receive things which are greater, more glorious, more awesome than we could ever possibly imagine. 1 Corinthians 2.9 As it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Now based upon what we already can see and hear and know from the word of God, from the work of his Holy Spirit in our lives, if he's got stuff in store for us, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Wouldn't you say that that's worth holding on to? Not forsaking, not laying down for instant gratification, things that cannot last, will not last, and ultimately are a double-edged sword. I mean, 
we would be less than honest if we didn't say there is some instant gratification and uh, using drugs, alcohol, sexual pursuits. But in every instance, when things are utilized outside of the parameters that God has established, that which feels so great on the upside, on the front, on the backside is destructive. Is it not? How many millions of lives do we have to see destroyed before we are willing to recognize and acknowledge the destructive nature of sin? And just like the Pharisees of old, Jesus said, you guys strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. The Pharisees are alive and well, and a lot of them live in Washington, D.C. That's the truth. And again, it crosses over. The civil, the secular, the spiritual, it's all interconnected. Anybody that says, well, we, we just got to focus on the spiritual, we shouldn't talk about politics, we shouldn't talk about government, we'll just ignore all that, and as I've said so many times, fine, then only the ungodly will be in charge of things. Is that how you want it? It's not how I want it. We're affected every day by the decisions these people make. Therefore, we need to be a part of the process of deciding who gets to decide. And we're fortunate to live in one of the few countries in the world where we really do have a voice. And again, those who don't want you to have a voice will make every effort to convince you that you don't. Your vote doesn't count. You know, your position is not valid. Most people in America want women to have abortions without restrictions. Don't you know that, dummy? That's not true. That's a lie. But daily we're bombarded with the lies of the enemy spoken through the mouths of people who are operating under the spirit of Antichrist. Ephesians 3, 20, 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. A lot of times we struggle just with the idea that God really cares about us, what we think, what we want, what we need. And yet we're told here in Ephesians, he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. According to the power that works in us, the power of the Holy Spirit. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. But see, the thing is, when we read these things exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, immediately our little pipsqueak minds, that's what they are, compared to God, we begin to think in earthly terms, don't we? Wow, that means he really wants me to have a bigger house. He wants me to have a newer car. Right? Now he's talking about spiritual things. See? We need to stop interpreting the Word of God through our own meager, puny, earthly minds and get them up there with Him where they belong. All right, verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. So here we have it again. Once again, over and over, Jesus emphasizes the importance of being an overcomer 
Or one translation says, the one who is victorious. And so now we come to the promised blessing Jesus gives to the overcomers in the church of Philadelphia. Jesus, this is one of only two churches that Jesus had no rebuke at all for. But we're reminded that each individual believer must constantly strive to be an overcomer, to endure, to persevere. Even the most dedicated, faithful follower of Christ must seek Him daily and yield his or her life up to Him each day. That's what it means to be an overcomer. You could say in a sense that every day is an uphill battle as we live in this world. We talked about the world, the flesh, the devil, all those elements that are pitted against us, and yet we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We have the victory in Jesus, but it's a daily battle until we see him face to face. Philippians 2.12 Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only. So Paul's commending the Philippians. They weren't just on their best behavior when he was around. It's like that song. There was a group called Daniel Amos back in the day, a great Christian band. And uh, they, they did a kind of a, a spoof song. And one of the lines I'll never forget was, Hide the beer, the pastor's here. <laughs> so <laughs> Paul says, Hey, you guys have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. So continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Again, he's not talking about earning their salvation. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling means that daily you are, you are making an effort to become the person that God already says you are in Christ Jesus. There is what we call positional sanctification, set apart by God. The moment you receive Christ, you are sanctified, you are set apart. But then now the responsibility of the believer is to spend the rest of your life becoming practically sanctified. Practical sanctification means you're doing what Paul says here, working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Working a day at a time with God's help, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of His Word, to become that person that God says you are the moment you get saved. How many of you want to be that person? Okay, and so it requires effort on our part. Again, we're not talking about earning your salvation. We're talking about becoming that person that God says you are. Another uh, translation says, not just while I'm there watching you, but on your own every day till you see Jesus face to face. Or at least that's my paraphrase of it. With fear and trembling, being an overcomer is serious business, folks. It's, it's, again, it's not a fear of losing our salvation, but it's a fear of disappointing God. That's a healthy fear, isn't it? We should be afraid of disappointing God. I remember one of the factors that influenced me growing up I wasn't perfect by any means. I definitely had my share of shenanigans. But whenever I knew that I had disappointed my mom, especially my dad died earlier on, and I had a closer relationship with my mom. My dad was out there in the workforce working every day. You're at home with mom. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, so 
Even after I started school, she was there waiting for me when I got home. But whenever I knew that I had disappointed her, I, it broke my heart. I felt horrible. A fear of disappointing God, our family and our friends. That should have sway over our choices, our decisions, our efforts to be an overcomer. And sadly, a lot of people don't think about those things. How is what I'm about to do or not do going to affect my loved ones, my, my husband, my wife, my kids, my grandkids, other family members? How are they going to be impacted? Because, folks, every time we make bad choices, it affects those around us. And people just don't think about it. But that's what it means to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You're afraid of disappointing God, and you're afraid of disappointing those around you. And you could put it this way also, a fear of blowing your witness. Do we have a healthy fear of that? We should. Okay, so then he says, I will make him, this, the overcomer, it could be a her too, of course, I will make him or her a pillar in the temple of my God. Now in the ancient Middle East, there was a custom of honoring a local magistrate or other important person by placing a pillar in his name in one of the temples or governmental buildings. In some churches we see there will be a pew dedicated to someone, other things, a name plaque here and there. We've even got a little plaque in our gymnasium. A very close friend of mine who went to be with the Lord several years ago, his wife donated a large amount of money for the gym, and she just asked if we'd put a little plaque there in remembrance of him, which we did. But he says, I'll make him a pillar. In addition, there's probably an allusion here to two pillars in the temple of Jerusalem called Jachin and Boaz, or Jachin and Boaz, and that means stability and strength. Two pillars in the temple that were in the temple in Jerusalem, Jachin and Boaz, it meant stability and strength. First Kings 7.21, then he, Solomon, set up the pillars by the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the right and called its name Jachin. He set up the pillar on the left and called its name Boaz. The church, the body of Christ, is the temple. Jesus is the foundation, and his servants are the pillars. Galatians 2.9, when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, this is Paul talking about when he met these guys, and they seemed to be pillars in the church, perceived the grace that had been given to me. They gave me and Barnabas, the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So there are pillars now in the church, and there will be pillars in that millennial kingdom, the overcomers, those who hold fast, to what we have in Christ. And we have some fantastic pillars in this church, by the way. And most of you know who they are. I don't have time to list the names right now, but we have some fantastic pillars in this church. God says that those who stand firm in this life will be made to stand firm forever in His glorious presence. I want to be a pillar. How about you? Let me close with these comments from Albert Barnes and his notes on the New Testament. The reward, therefore, promised here is that he who by persevering fidelity, faithfulness, showing that he was a real friend of the Savior, would be honored with a permanent abode in the holy city of his habitation. In the church, redeemed and triumphant, he would have a perpetual dwelling. And wherever he should be, there would be given him sure pledges that he belonged to him. 
and was recognized as a citizen of the heavenly world. To no higher honor could any man aspire, and yet that is an honor to which the most humble and lowly man may attain by faith in the Son of God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time in your word today and for helping us to get done on time. Lord, we know there's so much more ahead of us, but we thank you for this word today that Jesus is coming quickly and that we are to hold fast to what we have, that we might be overcomers, that we might be pillars in the temple of God. We thank you for the wonderful, glorious promises that you've given to us, and we look forward to dwelling one day in the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven. Lord, give us strength, we pray. Help us to hold fast. Help us to hold on to that which we have that you've given us in Christ, not to trade it off for anything that this world has to offer because there's nothing this world has to offer that can even begin to compare with what you've given us in Christ Jesus. And Father, we pray this morning for anyone here that might not have a personal relationship with you, Lord. They've not surrendered, that you would help them, that you would draw them by your Spirit, that this very day they might invite Christ to come into their life, to be their Lord and Savior, that they might confess their sins before you, repent, and begin a new life in Christ. And before we wrap up this morning, just keep your heads bowed, eyes closed. I want to ask everyone this morning who needs prayer if you just raise your hand. Whether it's for you or someone else, we, God knows. He knows your heart. He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows what your request is. And Father, we lift these requests up to you now, God. Lord, we like laying hands on people, but we know that's not really necessary. We don't have to do it. You are everywhere. Your Holy Spirit is like the wind. He moves whenever and wherever he chooses. And we pray that you would pour out your spirit now on each one who has raised their hand. You know what their request is, whether it would be a health issue, a financial issue, an emotional or spiritual issue, a relationship issue. God, we're so thankful that no matter what's going on in our lives, there is nothing too big for you, nothing that you can't handle. With you, all things are possible, and with you, nothing is impossible. Lord, we pray for healing where it's needed, whether it be physical, spiritual, emotional. We pray for provision. Lord, you did promise to meet our needs as we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Lord, if it's a broken relationship, we pray for healing, restoration, whatever it might be, Lord. We thank you that, again, nothing is too difficult for you. I pray for encouragement, comfort, and strength for those who raised their hands this morning. I pray that you would give them patience because, Lord, we know that even though you hear our prayers, there's also a little matter and a little issue of your timing. So we ask you to give them strength, to stand firm, to stand in faith, trusting you for a positive outcome. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.